Today I want to focus mainly on the applications of this passage. We've already uh, taken two sermons to look at some of the meaning. We've uh, looked at some applications already. But uh, I've been asked if I would uh, one more time uh, give an overview, but this time keep it simple and and clear and short. Uh, so that you can get a general meaning of the passage as a whole. So I'm going to do that before we go into the applications. And we're going to begin at verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And the first question that comes up is, why did he say 70 weeks instead of just saying 490 years? Wouldn't it be a whole lot clearer to say 490 years? Well, there's a, a reason for that. We looked at Leviticus 25 and 26 and some other passages that indicate that the Jews divided not only days up into weeks, but they also divided years up into weeks. So a seven-year period would be a week of years, with the seventh year being the Sabbath, where they had to let the land lie fallow, they released slaves, or a number of other provisions. And the reason he says 70 weeks instead of 490 years is it was precisely because so much of Israel's history was a violation of God's weekly structure. They failed to keep Sabbaths. In fact, Second Chronicles 36 says that's why they were in exile in the first place. There were 70 Sabbaths that they had broken in the past. They failed to keep God's weekly time structure. And so God says, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. Well, now it's the end of that 70-year period, and God tells Daniel there's going to be another 70 years in which God's patience will be tried. Not 70 years, 70 weeks, uh, where uh, these Sabbath uh, uh, periods are not kept. Now, we saw this is literal years that he's talking about, but we also saw that there was a symbolic element to that. These two 70-week periods were testimonies, a double witness, if you will, that Israel could not enter its own rest through its own works. And the only time that Israel is going to be able to enter into God's rest is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice that these 70 weeks are tied specifically to the land of Israel and to the city of Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, you cannot abstract these verses from the land of Israel and from the city of Jerusalem. They are tied uh, very clearly to uh, that, um, that period of time that they were there. And uh, we saw when you add up the years, it takes you all the way up to 73 uh, A.D. when the, the war against Israel ended with the exile of, uh, of Israel, uh, the destruction of Masada. Well, anyway, uh, we're not going to go through the mathematics, but let's just tick off the six things that he says are going to happen before those 70 weeks are finished. The first thing is to finish the transgression or literally, to restrain the rebellion. Now, we applied that to Israel, but really, this is the state of every human heart, apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that we are in rebellion against God. And uh, His work is to restrain that rebellion. The next phrase, uh, to make an end of sins. Now, there's two ways that that can be uh, translated. We, we saw it can apply to the, the sins that Christ took away of his elect, where he cast them as far as the east is from the west, away from us. And uh, Christ did that on the cross. But we also saw 135 times this word is translated as sin offerings. And if you take it in that sense, yes, in a very literal way, verse 27 says that uh, in the midst of that last week, 
sacrifice, sin offering would be uh, forever done away with because of the finished work of Christ. Now, either way you translate it, it, it ties in with the finished work of Christ. Uh, the next phrase says, uh, to make reconciliation for iniquity, or, or, or literally, to make atonement for iniquity. And uh, that speaks of the negative side of Christ's atonement, where He bore our sins in His body, and He covered over our sins with His blood. Uh, the next phrase talks about the positive side of the, uh, of the atonement, Christ's righteousness given to us as a gift. It says to bring in everlasting righteousness. What Israel was not able to achieve through its own righteousness, Christ achieved through His perfect life and through His death. Now, he didn't just give us everything but leave us in the dark. He also gave us a completed revelation, so it says to seal up vision and prophecy. And we saw that 100% of the time outside of this verse, uh, the word for prophecy is translated as prophet. And so he's saying that the inspired message and the inspired messenger would cease after 73 A.D. And it's interesting that uh, there's more and more evidence for this uh, coming out. I have a book that's been written by a, uh, a liberal, and usually liberals want to push all of this stuff off into the second century, but they're saying the evidence is overwhelming that all of the New Testament passages written before uh, 70 A.D. So again, very literal fulfillment. And then the last one, to anoint the most holy. Uh, or as it's translated everywhere else and in the margin here, the holy of holies. And Hebrews says, when Christ ascended to heaven, he purchased heaven for us. He anointed the holy of holies in heaven. So now we can go boldly before the throne of grace. And so those six phrases sum up the whole work of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're a beautiful testimony to his work. Now, uh, comes a, a more detailed breakdown of these 70 weeks in verses 25 through 27. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, and we saw how that tied in from the command that went forth in verse 23, this was the decree of Cyrus. Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45 says specifically, Cyrus decreed the building of Jerusalem. Uh, so he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. And I want you to notice how he divides those two periods of time. They are separated from each other. And we saw that there was a, um, a, a gap of time between uh, those two weeks. The reason for that gap was because under the leadership of uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, there was one of those rare times in history when Israel kept those Sabbath years, when there was faithfulness to the covenant. And so there's not the countdown of those 70 weeks towards judgment. Okay, if they're keeping the weeks, there's not a countdown on those weeks. Okay, can you see that? So there's a, a gap. Let me read that again. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's the, the two separate periods. Now the next two phrases, or clauses actually, uh, outline what happens after, in the 40-year in the gaps, after each of those two time periods he's just outlined. First of all, what happens after the first period, after the seven weeks, the 49-year period? He says, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. That was under Nehemiah. That was the time of faithfulness, so it's excluded from the count. Then verse 26 outlines what happens after the 62 weeks, during that gap. 
And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And um, I want you to notice that that does not occur during the 62 weeks, and it doesn't occur during the 70th week, which is in verse 27. This is something that happens in between that time. Now remember, we said that the 62 weeks uh, ended in 26 AD. That was when Messiah came, when John the Baptist uh, uh, came and, and he baptized Christ. And if you count from 26 AD to 66 AD, the beginning of that last week, again, an exact 40-year period of time. Why? Well, Malachi said that John the Baptist, his ministry would be effective, his reforms would be effective in averting judgment uh, for a period of time. And Christ said it was a period of a generation. Now, the rest of verse 26 tells us the result of Israel's rejection of the Messiah. That Messiah being cut, in, cut off, that was a reference to Jesus being crucified. And here's the result. The people of the prince who is to come, and that's a reference to the Jews. Christ says it was the Jews who would do that. Even Josephus said it was the Jews who really destroyed uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the Romans put the blame on them as well. But in any case, however you take that, it says the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Now, you look up in conservative commentaries. We've seen there's a lot of differences in other views. But on that verse, they say, yes, that does refer to the war against Jerusalem in the first century. Now, what I want you to notice is that verse 27, which outlines the last week does not occur before the war, does not occur after the war, it occurs during that war. Verse 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And uh, a week of years is seven years. So that, and that was the exact length of time of the war against Jerusalem. It started in 66 A.D., it went up through 73 A.D. Uh, he goes on and he says, But in the middle of the week... Now, what's the middle of seven years? Middle of seven years would be three and a half years, right? So if you count from 66 A.D., three and a half years, it takes you up to 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was destroyed, but more specifically, it takes you to the exact time when sacrifice and offering were cut off. And that was about 14 days before Titus defiled the temple. It was cut off. And so he goes on to talk about defi uh, the defiling of the temple and Titus destroying Jerusalem, it says, In the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, we do have an inspired commentary on this verse in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, where Christ says this, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Christ applies this passage, and specifically verse 27, to the war in the first century, not something that's off in the future. Luke 21 does the same. It says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And so we have the inspired witness that the seven-year period of tribulation, that last week of the 70 weeks, occurs during the seven-year war against Jerusalem uh, in the first century. The, so the passage just fits together beautifully. It's a testimony to uh, the inspiration of Scripture. 
Now, if we were just to leave our exposition there, we'd have our heads filled with some facts, but God wants us to be changed by the Bible. He wants us to be transformed. And so even though we've emphasized the meaning of the passage in the last two uh, weeks, we've spent some time on application, and I want to uh, give you six more applications this morning. The first application that is obvious is that God determines history, not man. Uh, Three times in this passage, it says that the times were determined. Now, if you're anxious and you're worried about the the future, you need to firmly hold this, this truth in your mind that our world is not out of control. It is determined by God. History is not determined by man. It's not determined by America or or Russia or uh, Satan or anything else in creation. It is determined by God, including the most devastating tribulation that this world has ever known. Now, if God could control that, and if he controls every sparrow that flies and every sparrow that falls, if he controls every hair that falls from your head or that grows on your head, certainly we can trust him with our future, can't we? Yes, God holds all of history in his hands. Now consider this, every facet of history is determined by an all-wise, powerful, just, holy, loving God who has committed himself on your behalf. It's an incredible thought. When you begin to think about that, it brings comfort, it brings uh, incredible stability into our lives. Uh, To me, when I finally came to grips with the the sovereignty of God over all of history, it was one of the most stabilizing factors in my my Christian walk. And look at the things that, that were determined. Verse 24 says, 70 weeks are determined. Now that speaks of the patience and the mercy of God where he put up with their rebellion for 70 weeks of years. And yet that ran out because it was determined. It was determined for a period. Verse 26 says that till the end of the war, desolations are determined. That speaks of God's wrath and his justice in history. You know, the book of Revelation, when it comments on that seven-year period of tribulation, it says that people in the first century, they were crying out uh, for a stop, crying out to God for a stop to the anguish that they were going through. And God did not reverse that. God did not take one month or one day off of that tribulation. It says it was determined. It was determined, and that is a sobering thought. Now, verse 27 says that the consummation or the ending is determined, namely the ending of the desolation, and that speaks of Christ's victory, the victory of his kingdom. It is determined. It is going to happen. Absolutely nothing can hinder the salvation of the nation of Israel so that, as uh, Acts says, the times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. History is firmly in the grip of God, whether it's past history, present history, or future history. I don't know about you, but to me, this is a thrilling doctrine. It is very, very encouraging. See, the only way that God could guarantee, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for my good is if he controls everything that happens in history. Uh, That's the only way he could guarantee the victory of the church that he promised. The gates of hell, even, would not be able to prevail against that church. Uh, It was a firm belief of the sovereignty of God that enabled Calvinists in years past to march fearlessly into battle. It it enabled uh, families who faced tragedy to face it without falling apart. See, those things are not arbitrary. They're not meaningless. God works them together. The very God who governs history is here on your behalf for your salvation. Amen? Okay, second application is this. 
There can be no benefits for Israel outside of Christ's atonement, outside of repentance and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the way many prophecy nuts uh, uh, teach today, and you'll hear it on the radio and in other places, Israel has God's favor right now. They, they, they teach that. There are Christians in Congress, believe it or not, who mistakenly think that they must support every political agenda that Israel may put forward, and that is insane. It runs contrary to the Scripture. And let me tell you what, it has been very hurtful to Christian Palestinians, and it has been very hurtful policies to Christian Jews who live in the land of Israel because right now the Jewish nation is persecuting uh, Christians in their land. This uh, passage here, I believe, is a bold testimony to the fact that only God's wrath rests upon Israel until they repent and until they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the book of Revelation calls uh, Israel Sodom and Egypt. Now, that's hardly something that is under God's favor. Um, Israel is in need of, of, of evangelism. They are in need of our prayers. They are not in need of blind allegiance. And we should not be supporting Israel's policies any more than Jesus did, any more than the apostles did. They certainly did not. They saw Israel as being in rebellion. And this passage indicates Israel in the first century was cut off from the covenant. Romans 11 says the only way they're going to be grafted back into the covenant is the same way we were grafted into the covenant, through faith in Jesus Christ. And Ephesians indicates, and actually many passages indicate, there's only one body of God. When Israel becomes converted, there won't be two bodies of Christ, like dispensationals teach. It's going to be one body, the church. They will be grafted back in. The third application is that Jesus has provided everything that we need for life and godliness and throughout all of eternity. <coughs> and the six uh, phrases of verse 24, I think, testify to that point so, so strongly. <clears throat> For example, <clears throat> there are those who think that we um, people need to contribute uh, the first step towards salvation. You know, God's provided everything else, but you've got to take the first step. Uh, you've got to uh, move in faith toward the Lord. Scripture says God's got to even provide the faith. What does that first phrase imply? The only thing we can contribute is rebellion and sin, and that's something that God, by His grace, restrains either through judgment or through conversion through uh, restraining our hearts. Uh, secondly, it doesn't matter how you translate verse 2, whether it means to put an end to sins, you know, where our sins were put away uh, in Christ, or to put away uh, sin offerings, it contradicts Roman Catholic theology, which denies the finished work of Christ. Our sins were forever dealt with by Christ, and in the first century, sin offerings were forever dealt with. And yet, over and over again, you find in the Council of Trent, uh, in the first and second Vatican councils, in the newest uh, Roman Catholic um, catechism, that the Eucharist is called a sacrifice or sin offering that uh, is needed to expiate our sins. For example, Catechism 1414 says, quote, as sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. And Daniel says, no way, no way. It was finished within 70 weeks. It was put away. There are no more sacrifices that can be offered. Uh, contrary to Roman Catholic and Arminian theology, Christ did not just make atonement possible. He made atonement actual. All for whom Christ died will be saved. 
It is not a possibility here. He says he deals with it. He deals with sin and with iniquities. <coughs> and there is no penance uh, sufficient to remove our iniquities. We are shut up to the mercy of Jesus Christ alone. The fourth phrase says to bring in everlasting righteousness. You know, when you look at your own righteousnesses, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags unless they are covered with the blood of Christ and produced by Christ. And there are so many people who are fearful. They don't see their security in Christ. They're fearful that maybe some sin that they commit in the future, they might lose their salvation or they may not persevere. Let me tell you this. The only reason that we believed in the first place and the only reason we were justified, the only reason we are being sanctified is the same reason we're going to be glorified. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Don't look to yourself or you're going to become all, all worried and anxious about your security. Your security is in the Lord. I don't normally read uh, from paraphrases, but William's paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 to 31, I think is right on target. He says this, So you owe it all to him through union with Christ Jesus, whom God has made our wisdom, our means of right standing, our consecration, and our redemption, so that, as the Scripture says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We do not contribute a thing. Now, Jesus didn't just provide uh, everything we need in salvation, but leave us in the dark, make us worry about it. No, he gave us a complete scripture as well. He says in there, in that phrase, to seal up vision and profit. There is no more scriptures given after the scriptures. They're sealed up, they're closed. The book is finished. We have everything that pertains to life and godliness, says 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that the scriptures are sufficient to make the man of God complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And when you have a book like David Wilkerson's The Vision, which is supposed to be a prophetic utterance that the church is supposed to follow, you have to treat it as heresy because the canon has been closed. There is no more inspired revelation or vision from the Lord. And I think the moment we we uh, uh, fail to hold on to that doctrine, we get ourselves into trouble. We begin adding to the Scripture or taking away from the Scripture. It is sufficient. The last phrase indicates that Jesus made the way into heaven uh, possible by anointing the Holy of Holies. We don't need Mary as mediator. Uh, we don't need Phil Kaiser as mediator. Every one of you can go directly to the Holy of Holies and boldly make your request known to the Father. Why? Because it's not our merits that get the answers anyway. It's Jesus' merits. And if we're united to Him, we have access. And so really, that verse is just a thrilling, thrilling verse summing up the whole work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now, there are times when we substitute other things for the work of Christ, and I think one of the ways that we do that is by uh, the uh, saying that knowledge is needed in addition, rather than saying Jesus is the one who even gives us uh, that wisdom. But the way many people treat evangelism, you would think that man's only problem was that he doesn't have all the facts that he needs together. You know, uh, man's basically good, but if we could just convince him of the right facts, then we can save that person. Let me tell you, it doesn't work that way because the Jews in the first century, they had all kinds of facts. They knew about the coming of Christ. In fact, even the secular literature from that time period indicates they were all expecting the imminent appearing of the Messiah. Christ quoted this passage. He says, within a generation, these judgments would come upon Israel. 
And yet Israel, for the most part, rejected him. See, it's not knowledge. Romans 1 says people have plenty of knowledge, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The depravity of our hearts needs to be changed by Almighty God before anyone will believe. And so when you go out and engage in evangelism, yes, knowledge is important. He commands knowledge here. He says, know therefore and understand, but the only way that a person is going to be converted is by God to open our minds, change our wills, Renew our affections so that we, instead of being enemies of God, will be turned into friends of God. Trust God when you go out in evangelism. He's the one that converts. You don't convert people. All we are is tools, is instruments in his hands. We have the privilege of leading people to Christ, but we cannot convert them. Now, I'm not going to um, spend a lot of time on application five, uh, but I think it ought to be encouraging to every one of us to know that the great tribulation is already past. You don't need to be worrying yourself sick, you know, whether you're going to be going through the great tribulation in the future or not. No, the scripture says it's already passed. The seven years of tribulation have been fulfilled to AT. And if you want more details on that, including blood up to the horses, bridles and all that kind of stuff, I can give it to you. But to me, that's a very encouraging thing. Part of the paralysis of the church, whether you're pre-trib and you think you're going to escape or you're post-trib, is looking to the future and thinking that fatalistically thinking, there is nothing we can do about the apostasy and the unbelief and uh, people turning away from the Lord. See, we already pointed out from an earlier passage in Daniel that Daniel makes it very clear that the cross of Jesus Christ is not the start of a repeat of history. It is the reverse of history. Things going downhill to the cross and from the cross going uphill. Yes, at the beginning of Christ's kingdom, there was going to be tribulation. There was going to be apostasy and all kinds of unbelief. But out of that would come the victory of his kingdom. And as Isaiah said, of the increase of his kingdom of peace, there would be no end. And yet this great tribulation of seven years is only a tiny foretaste of the eternal tribulation that all will experience if they are outside of Christ. They will experience God's wrath throughout all of eternity in hell. And that's a sobering thing to think about. When you, when you realize in the book of Revelation where it talks about God's unrelenting wrath that was poured out in those seven years, there are other scriptures that say God's wrath will be unrelenting in eternity. There will be no second chances. There will be no escape. And what I want to encourage each and every one of you to do is to flee from the wrath to come. That wrath is going to make this look small in comparison. The wrath of hellfire. Let me tell you kids from my heart that it is my desire that every one of you would put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you cannot be saved just banking on your parents' faith. You can't be saved just by belonging to a church. You've got to trust in what Jesus Christ did in that verse, verse 24. He paid it all, and what you need to do is say, Lord, I believe you died for my sins, and I give you all my sins, and I thank you that you died as my substitute, and I thank you that you have given me your righteousness, and I take that. I receive it by faith. Because let me tell you, the entrance fee into heaven is perfection of living. Be ye perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect, said Christ. Not a one of us is perfect. I'm not perfect. You are not perfect. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way that you are going to get into heaven, according to this passage and many other passages, is by trusting Jesus Christ as a substitute. He was cut off in the middle. Uh, He was cut off from the land of the living. He was crucified so that we would not have to be cut off from God's presence. He was forsaken by God on the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
so that we would never have to be forsaken. And I would plead with you, do not think you can face the eternal wrath of God apart from Christ. If you have Christ, you've got peace with God. You will have heaven. He's purchased it for you. It's a gift. It's not something you can own. You can earn on your own. But it is something that he gives to those who in their humility as beggars are willing to receive it. It's my prayer each one of you would do that. Amen.